Okay, welcome to another episode of the Slam podcast. Um, we are talking the day after, or well, for us UK fans, on the day of the end of the US Open. Um, I'm Matt Chivers. Joining me this week is Tom Elwin of the From the Clubhouse podcast. Tom joined me in the episode after the PGA Championship as well. So Tom clearly specialises in just um, post-major, post-major podcasts. Um, Tom, how are you? I'm good, mate. I think it's I quite like my role. Actually, I just turn up for the big ones. Uh, so yeah, there's quite a lot to get through, isn't there? It was kind it's, of it was an odd experience. Is your was it your first ever East Coast major as a journalist? Um, I think so. Well, it, where has it been recently? Last year was okay. That was in New York. That was okay. And then what was Tory Pines? That was John Rahm. Can't really remember covering that one. Well, it's a um, disaster. That the, it's West Coast, rather, isn't it? It's just a disaster, mm. isn't it, from a time zone point of view? Yeah, not not good. No, you, it was awful. Have you been nice. playing? Have you been playing any golf in amongst all this? No, I haven't. I went to the I went to Trafford Golf Centre last week um, and hit some balls. But I don't know if you've ever been or if you go regularly at all. It is it's the busiest place in in, in the world. Um, it, it is it is really good. Like there's so many bays and there's two tiers and. Um, but annoyingly, because now you used to pay for your balls and then pay for an hour of top tracer, I think. Mm. But now that's just all part of the package. So you pay, I think I paid twelve pound for eighty balls, and then as long as I wanted on top tracer. Um, so I was go, I was going to do my yardages, sort of hit hit five or six balls with each club, and then take down the average yardage. But the top tracer wasn't actually working, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit annoying because. It's obviously what you pay for as well, and it wasn't working. So um, it was quite chaotic as well because you get people that aren't really golfers there that that rent like those drivers with yellow shafts, and there's all sorts of banging noises and balls hitting the roof and things like that. That's pretty committed doing your yardages. What's happening there then? Yeah, well, I I, I did it in like December as well. Um, Jesus. But obviously the ball's travelling a bit further in in the summer, so I thought I'd redo them. but yeah, I was a bit annoyed because I, I, I was starting with my started with my fifty eight degree wedge, and and the top tracer was, wasn't picking it up. Yeah, which was, I was really quite frustrated because I wanted to. Well, I, I, I'm starting trying to play more and more golf. I played it a few weeks ago. My last round was at High Lee. Um, I often go there with my flatmates. Um, it's actually all right. It was. A, I think we paid about. I think we played ten quid, and we and there was there was nothing wrong with it. It's it's, it's a very decent eighteen hole course at High Lee, and then there's the nine hole course as well, the academy. I'm more interested in your. Yeah. Trafford Golf Centre experience. It's like a finishing school for YouTube stars, isn't it? It's yeah. sort of it's it's spawned Peter Finch and Rick Shields, no less. And is is Matthew Farr on Facebook as well? Oh, no, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was definitely there as well. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to be a YouTube star, you basically mm. have to go and work at Trafford Golf Centre. Yeah. But you played in golf in Ireland last week, didn't you? That was two weeks ago. I've been doing all sorts of go- I've been doing all sorts of golf. It's hard to know where to start. Mm. Tell you what I'm, first of all, I'm going to do is I'm going to out your old colleagues from Golf Magic as the shysters that they are. <laughs> right? What is that then? I played in uh, the Ping Media Cup last Thursday, which was a great occasion at Gainsborough, where we played the Carston Lakes Golf Course. Mm. Uh, National Club golfer with the defending champions. This was ten years ago. It, only happened, it doesn't happen that frequently. The Ping Media Cup, that is. Uh, anyway, Dan and I won the event ten years ago, so we're invited back to defend our trophy. But we were pipped at the post by ex-sports pub employee, ex-NCG employee Christian Maiden, and oh. their 
your ex-colleague from Golf Magic. But I can tell you for nothing, there's a lot of controversy about Maiden's handicap because the last time he played here, he was claiming five uh, and he played off ten in the team meet. Exactly. God. Did Alex, was it Alex that played with him? It was Alex, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a very well. I've never actually played with him, but he's a he's a decent golfer. I think he's, he's, a, he's, he's sort of four or five. I think he's a strapping lad as well, isn't he? Sort of Teutonic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, hits it a long way. So that was one thing I did last week. The other thing I did was play in the Yorkshire Team Championships, which is this absolutely unbearable format of a thirty-six hole scratch medal, team of three, all scores to count. All scores to count. Wow, absolutely brutal. Uh, it was at Driffield Golf Club, oh. which. Is which was basically set up like a US Open venue, for, so we can sort of segue into that. Uh, lots and lots of stakes, shall we say. Very fast greens, mm-hmm. lots of tucked pins, and some very high scores. Did you... What did you shoot? Did you? There's no need to dwell on that, is there, Matt? <laughs> All right, uh, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. The way the way it works is that the there's 18 teams, the top six teams qualify for the next division up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, two... Six teams get relegated for next year, and six teams stay where they are for next year. And we got promoted. Oh well. Details such as I was the worst of our three golfers can be left to one side. I feel like on on your podcast, I feel like you're quite modest about your golf, but you are pretty decent. So the other two golfers on your team must have been pretty decent as well. I think you find it self depreciating. It's not modesty. It's kind mm. of it's like a self defence mechanism. Yeah. And then I also played in the mixed foursomes at my golf club on. Friday afternoon with Hannah and we lost. And again, God. I can tell you it was nothing to do with Hannah's golf. It was mainly my golf. But it's all been it's all been pretty good. So did you actually watch any of this US Open then or what? So I watched quite a bit on I watched quite a bit on Thursday and Friday. I was dead keen to watch it. I was desperate to watch it. I was desperate to stay up. I was deliberating staying up, but in the end I'm sort of pleased I didn't actually. Why on earth was it all on so late? Well, even for members of the media that were there, I imagine they sort of groaned because they didn't it didn't tee off until 3 40 p.m local time yeah and um, for a bit for a bit of context like the the last groups in the open go out about 2 30 don't they so it's like yeah. a, a good a thick hour uh later than an open open final pairing yeah um and i did on saturday i did contact the usga to actually ask why um and the reason was it allows us to, it allows us to take advantage of a prime time broadcast window on the east coast. Mm. So that is the reason. So yeah, I mean, the guess if you didn't know that the guess would be that it's a satisfied television slots, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but a lot of the players didn't like it. Wyndham Clark, the eventual winner, um, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> um, he said afterwards that him and he felt I can't remember if he bogeyed the seventeenth or eighteenth on Saturday or. Ricky, oh, Fowler did. Fowler bogeyed the 18th on Saturday, three putties. And Wyndham Clark said he can't help thinking the darkness was down, that was down to the darkness. Um, and, yeah, I mean, crazy. The, the, the only time I wrote, I wrote in the week as well, well, at the weekend, the only time I can remember that was in 2015 at Chambers Bay. And that's in Washington, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that, I, I stayed up for that, actually. I don't, I don't know why. I think I had school the next day, which was it's a pretty stupid thing to do, but I stayed up. For, I was so desperate to watch it, so I stayed up for that. And I think the leaders teed off at 11 p.m. on Sunday for that. So that's the latest I can remember, really, staying up for the golf. Um, and that was actually really exciting because Jordan Spieth won, then Dustin Johnson absolutely 
blew up on the 18th, didn't he, if you remember? It was pretty amazing, yeah. So just, I just think that I kind of get it. Like you want, you want things to be uh, timed for your biggest TV audience. But I mean, there are people in other parts of the world and there has to be a limit, right? I mean, even from an operational point of view, I think the Saturday tea times were slightly later than the Sunday tea times, obviously to allow for a playoff or, or whatever. But you can't, you can't risk your leading group finished in the dark. And that, bear, that bearing in mind is without anything going wrong. Like mm. obviously, obviously they have a very accurate weather forecast and all the rest of it, but any number of things could have gone wrong that meant things, mm. were, de- things were delayed. Um, so it feels like they left themselves absolutely no slack and they, they left every, all of us over here in Europe kind of red eyed and wondering what's happened to the U S open. Like a yeah. very, very, very sort of frustrating experience. I can't imagine, yeah, I can't imagine many, well, I mean, I, I don't know anyone who, who would have bothered to stay up to watch it. Um, I think the tactic would have been, if you did, was to, was to set an alarm and, like, get up. But even then, you're missing a massive chunk of the golf, aren't you? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it was completely, be, it was completely, um, um, well, just unideal for UK golf fans. It'd be amazing to see what the Sky viewing figures were, particularly on the Saturday, right? Yeah. People, I mean, well, I don't know, really, because people right enough might have stayed up on a weekend night to watch it. But, I mean... People have got jobs to go to and stuff like mm. that. So just very, very peculiar thing. No, I, I was very tempted to stay up um, and do and go all the way through because I was before it before it all started on last night. I was really excited about it because you had sort of Wyndham Clark who hadn't won before, and then Ricky Fowler was back, and then you had obviously Matt the Rackaroy, um story with Scheffler, Dustin Johnson, sort of just in behind as well. But it, it, in the end, it wasn't actually. When I woke up, I was texting my mates last night, and I said, "If, if I wake up and Roy McIlroy hasn't won, I'll be absolutely stunned because it was just a two-horse race, wasn't it? it? Well, that's what it became. To it's, that's what it seemed like it, it became. Um, and obviously, with no disrespect to Wyndham Clark, you'd, you'd obviously fancy Roy McIlroy to come out in a, in, in, in a two-horse race against Wyndham Clark, but no, an amazing uh, performance from the new number world, from new world number thirteen. Before this, he'd never finished." In the top seventy-five of a major, came tied seventy-fifth was his ever was best ever finish. So he's twenty-nine years old. Um, and he turned professional in two thousand seventeen. So to be fair, he's he's, he's only been round on the PGA Tour, well, or, or in the professional game for um for six years. So a relatively short time. Um, he's played one hundred and thirty-seven events in the PGA Tour. He'd only in that time he'd only ever only ever come runner-up once, third place once, um, and. Last week, last week, last month was his first win on the tour, um, the Wells Fargo Championship. So you, you you could have been forgiven for thinking that he'd have a good week, but to actually win the US Open was that was 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 pretty incredible. He he hits it an absolute mile. He's sixth in driving distance on the PGA Tour, and um, he gains strokes every day off the tee at Los Angeles Country Club. Um, so yeah, he he went into this last round tied with Ricky Fowler. Um, and it was a shame to see Ricky Ricky drop out of contention. To be honest, I couldn't tell you if he was dropped from the coverage because I don't really watch it. But so he might have been on drop from the coverage watch. Um, but with, yeah, with Wyndham Clark, he, he having won last uh, month at Quail Hollow and having now won the U.S. Open, I mean, you'd assume that he probably will be or g- gained enough points um, to be. I don't think they've updated yet the Ryder Cup standings, but I imagine he'll be second or third after that. And he would assumably, presumably, have earned his place in the Ryder Cup team now, um, having entered this year, not a winner on the PGA Tour. So that's quite an interesting thing. He he won um, 10 years after his mum passed away of cancer 
in 2013, which was a really poignant moment for him, of course. Um, his caddy, John Ellis, I believe his father died a couple of years ago. So to win on Father's Day um, was very, it was just a very emotional moment when he tapped in um, to, uh, w- w- when he won, when he tapped in to win, just a very emotional moment for the pair of them. Um, similar to sort of the sort of scenes we saw when Justin Rose won at Merion. Um, he sort of paid tribute to his dad, didn't he? Because his dad passed away before he could he could see his son win the Mets, win the US Open. So, um, yeah, were you surprised to wake up and see that he'd won? Imagine you were. Just a pretty amazing story. Like we, I mean, yeah. we we have like pretty serious betting system um, to try and predict the the winners of majors, uh, and it's it's not foolproof, but it's pretty good. Uh, so we look at whether people have won in the last year, and I think he won the Wells Fargo, didn't he? Mm. Uh, and then we look at their record in majors, particularly um, the major that you obviously they're obviously playing in. Um, and then we look at we try and discount box office people, as in the, the people just end up with like stupidly short odds, like Scheffler, for example, going into this. I think was I think some people were even trying to say he was evens, but the, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, anybody in the world top fifty. Um, Kind of has a, on a on a form on a long term basis has just as much chance than any major as anybody else. Mm. So if someone like Wyndham Clark is exactly the sort of person we're trying to dig out. Uh, he's won in the last year. Um, he's in the world. He was in the world top fifty. He's now well into the world top twenty. Um, but I mean, we I would definitely have discounted him even on an each way basis on the basis of his major record because it's all just like miscut, 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 miscut. Mm. And then one seventy sixth, which allows you to say he's not finished high, high. Like he's just got literally zero um, major pedigree, um, which is quite an amazing thing. So to, to like turn up and then win, and particularly to win against such a stacked field, absolutely ridiculous. But seemingly nobody came at him, right? Like I just, what no. happened? To, what happened? To somebody making a last day charge? Fleetwood did right enough, but from too far back. Mm. Um, just it seemed to be quite an odd thing in that the scoring, the good scoring was happening away from the leading players. Um, I don't know how much of that was down to the down to the um, the golf course because there were some like ridiculous scores early in the week, weren't there? Well, yeah, I mean, um, we saw Ricky Fowler and Xander Schauffele shoot sixty twos in the first round, which equaled Brandon Grace's sixty two at Royal Birkdale, but but these were the lowest rounds in U.S. Open history. Um, and then you got sort of get people coming out and going, oh, this shouldn't happen at the US Open. The US <laughs> Open needs to, they'll need to shoot, they'll need, need to be shooting five over, don't they, at the US Open, supposedly. Um, and then some other lads gave it a good run. So Tommy Fleetwood gave it a good run yesterday. Um, Austin Eckroat gave it a, a very good run. He was, I think he was, might have been six under after 12 holes. So he, he was, he might have even been less holes than that. So he was giving it a good run. Tom Kim, I think it was on Saturday, Tom Kim broke the front nine scoring record at US Open of 29 shots. So so the scoring was lower than usual at a US Open, of course. Um, but do you think that's a massive issue? Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, To me, a big part of the interest in majors is the golf course, right? Um, I think mm. that's possibly because of why I don't get quite so excited about the Masters because everything's been said about the golf course. There's nothing. New, there's nothing new to learn. Nothing new to say. Um, U.S. Opens, PGAs. It's obviously less variety in terms of um, open venues, but there's still sort of nuances and and subtlety and how the golf course is set up to discuss and kind of drink in during the course of the week. Um, 
And I think that, I don't know, my position changed loads on, on the golf course. I, I was kind of all ready to write a piece about how the US Open ruins golf course setups. Um, and I think it's kind of it's kind of worth talking about that through the context of how this particular golf course was set up. So what we what we tend to see at US Opens is ridiculously narrow fairways, ridiculously thick <laughs> rough, even at the first cut or the second cut, like just off the fairway. So it's kind of like QI alarm stuff that people are posting on social media that they can't find their ball when they drop it from mm-hmm. six inches. And that's kind of what you expect. And then on top of that, <laughs> baked greens, golf courses that are absolutely on the limit of the greens being lost. Um, and that, that was more what we saw at the PGA this year. It wasn't quite mm-hmm. that extreme, but that is generally speaking what, what that is more what we saw where Kepka won. Um, and I think that when you get US Open setups like that, it's a little bit like Augusta Syndrome in April in this country where we see this kind of pristine golf course and then we turn up our golf course on the 1st of April and expect golf courses in this country to be just mm-hmm. as green, the sand to be just as white and everything's just as perfect. And it never is. And I always think the US Open, the way the US Open is set up or the way the USGA have traditionally done it is that it's got to be this brutally hard test of golf. And I think... That, then that feeds into how often golf courses set up here for like run-of-the-mill club events where people think that hard is good, right? So for mm-hmm. the big events of the year, they'll try and get the greens as quick as possible. They'll tuck the pins. They'll grow the they'll grow the rough in a little bit. And we kind of grow up with this narrative that golf is supposed to be difficult. Um, and I'm not sure that's especially helpful for your average club golfer or for the, the casual golfer or for people mm-hmm. trying to get in, into the game. Um, and I'd have this argument with people, like I've discussed this a lot with people in my golf club, and they say, yeah, but they're the best players in the world. And yeah, it's supposed to be this this absolutely sort of the truest test of golf. And I kind of get that, but I still don't think it's a, I don't think it's a particularly, I don't think it's a particularly good image. And like, if you think about stuff like, even when you read daft stuff like uh, yardage books or pros tips at golf clubs, it's always about how hard the golf course is, right? Um, and I think that's mm. odd that's at odds with what we want people to think about the game, which is enjoyable. So anyway, I think pre pre us open, I was all ready to sort of have a rant about this on our website and that's, but that's not what we presented with, is it? And all of a sudden uh, days one and two, particularly we had these kind of wide open fairways with a relatively soft golf course. Um, certainly on the first day, I thought we were pretty soft pins. They tried mm. to check, they tried to change that on Friday into the weekend. <laughs> And then we got these like really, really low scores. And all of a sudden the, to- the story is the opposite. It's, it's the US Open uh, losing its reputation. Has it lost its teeth? Blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think there were, there'll be some people that tell you that the golf course was set up too easy. I, I, I'm like properly torn by it because to me, this kind of giving people width off the tee and trying to restore kind of angles and, being able to hit into the fairway, but into the right part of the fairway is kind of exactly how a golf course should be set up. For that to work, obviously, you need the golf course to be kind of firm and fast because you need mm. the, the golf ball to be running and running out of position. And you need the ball to be moving when it's on the green. I think Steve was writing something on, on Friday about, is the golf course too easy? Has the US Open lost its teeth? And I replied to him saying, well, let's just see what happens over the weekend if they let the course go. But it just, it never, ever felt like it got to that, that really kind of fast and firm, uh, underfoot, um, underfoot conditions that they, that they kind of needed, I think, to, to make it interesting. And I think then what, then what happens is that you end up with tuck pins and you end up with a scenario a little bit like we ended up with at St. Andrews last year, where the golf course is kind of defended on pin position. 
Mm. And for a lot of people, that means hitting into the fat part of greens, two putting a lot of greens, and you get a lot of pars, right? Mm. Because people are not not willing to take pins on. People might bomb a few putts in from 20, 25 feet. But realistically, it's a game of patience. Um, and that perhaps leads to quite a one-dimensional tournament. And that's maybe what you saw. And that's kind of out with like some quirkiness that perhaps we don't appreciate watching on TV. But there was some pretty obvious random stuff going on in terms of like big, big side hills, blind mm. shots. There's a par three playing at 70 odd yards, whatever it was, which is just weird. Um, there's a couple of like very, very oddly positioned trees of that par five on the front nine where they're all trying to like bend it around a tree. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't feel quite right to me. Um, like I say, I wouldn't want to say too much because I didn't actually see that live. But I think you could take you could take a lot from it in terms of what you could see on TV, and the players didn't like it particularly, did they? No, some of them didn't. Um, <clears throat> Brooks Kepka, although he um, although he admitted that he's won on golf courses that he doesn't like before, um, I, he didn't actually identify them or name them. Um, but he, <laughs> he, 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 he said that he, he has won on golf courses that he hasn't liked, so he wasn't making any excuse. But he did say he doesn't like. He's not a fan of the place. He doesn't like some blind tee shots. Um, he alluded to some scores being made, um, like Dustin Johnson made an eight on the second round, I think. Um, and he said that wasn't normal. Things like that aren't normal. Um, Matt Fitzpatrick said it wasn't his cup of tea. Um, he, he also alluded to the blind shot element of the golf course. Um, I can't remember who else. It might have been Colin Morikawa who made a comment caught on camera as well. Um, but I can't remember. Um but yeah, I think I—I I don't know. From from viewing on the TV, I thought it looked a brilliant. I thought it looked a really, really good golf course. The um, the famous Barranca that was being um, mentioned mentioned. I actually wrote a piece on the Barranca. I wrote a piece called "What Is a Barranca?" because I'd, I'd I'd certainly never heard of one before this week. Um, that ran through the, the majority of the front nine. Um, I thought it looked quite a fun golf course. I, I, I don't think. Although the short par three fifteenth made up, you could argue that made up for the two longer ones. The two long ones are a bit of, a, a bit silly, to be honest. You know, two hundred two hundred ninety nine yards. I think it played one day. I know it was downhill, but I don't know. I think that might have been taking the taking the, the brutality, the reputation that US Open has to the limits there. Um, the sixth hole was really fun. I thought um, the drive pool par four, they were where they were going over the tree or they were laying up. It was quite interesting to see the fortunes of people who laid up and who went for it. Um, we saw that uh, Alejandro Del Rey from DP World Tour nearly make a holding one, about two feet from making a holding one. Um, and I, I didn't really enjoy sort of seeing people criticise the golf course after the first few days because of how how it wasn't that difficult <coughs> because of the scores. Um I thought that was. A, I thought some of the comments I saw on social media were a bit cringy. You know, they, it's got to be low. It's got to be tough. And sometimes the weather just doesn't behave itself. You know, if I think we saw more of a US Open venue that everyone wanted to see at the weekend, where it was quite dry. Um, you know, in the last round, the top three in the leaderboard didn't all shot level par. Um, Ricky Fowler um, and Xander Schauffele, you know, didn't cover themselves in glory at the weekend. You could argue, however. Fowler was eight under after the first round and finished five under mm. um, after four rounds. Chauvet finished three under after four rounds. Um, so I think we saw more of a US Open venue on the weekend. Um, 
Yeah, but I think I think I think because they let the course go right, yeah, they, just, yeah, they, yeah. Let, they, they let it dry out, and it and it needed a bit of wind probably to like really big, make some of that firmness kind of a, a big factor. I just thought it was I don't know, like it was. There's a there's a golf course here called Broadstone, which is an absolutely beautiful place place to play golf. Um, it's a GBNI top 100 course. I think it's certainly the top 100 courses in England. And there's a couple of courses in Holland, um, which people would say are links courses. They're not really, but they're by the sea, um, where there's an awful lot of elevation change. Um, and I thought that was the case here. Like it just, like the players never criticise PJ Tour venues right enough because they're kind of like set up because it's people playing for money and all the rest of it. And it's, yeah. it's kind of set up with a, there's a, a big degree of, of player experience and fairness in mind. And they kind of like want to know that they're going to get a fairly similar challenge week in, week out. Like the, yeah. they're kind of almost specified in terms of how they set the courses up. The, the way that majors set up, there's much more latitude from the rights holders. And they obviously are trying to create something that is distinct and memorable and a unique test for their particular major in that particular week. And I think the preparation that went into LA Country Club has like been going on for like almost a decade in terms of trying to grow the Bermuda out and all the rest of it. I just thought there was some stuff where you just kind of like scratching your head going, really, at a major? Like mm. stuff stuff like 13, where the where the ball was basically ending up in the same place the whole time. Yeah. Um, and that there were people like landing in divots like pretty routinely. And you get this stuff at, um, at the old course sometimes, like on, on holes like... Um, uh, seven into the corner um, before the par three eighth, where the kind of layup basically puts you in the same spot the whole time, just in front of the eleventh um, green. And it's like um, it, they have to work really hard to try and um, mitigate that by moving the tee position, moving the pin position, so it's not the same spot all week. They couldn't do that on that thirteenth hole, so it's kind of everybody was ended up in the same spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there was a massive premium in terms of getting over slopes on distance, like more than any other. Some of that width, I think, meant that the longer hitters were getting their driver out an awful lot. Um, and it was kind of, yeah, I don't know. There were just, there, were, there was a lot of um, greens that uh, sloped um, uh, front to back, which is just kind of the easiest trick in the book, I think, from a defending a course point of view. Um, so there's kind of a, a lot to it, I think, in that it was just, it was quirky, shall we say. Mm. Um, there's a lot of side hills. <laughs> And again, sort of side hills are fine, but you sort of have to be able to see them. And like, if you're hitting into a side hill that you can't see and the ball just does not stop until it gets to the side of the fairway, I'm not really sure that's right. Mm. Um, so there's quite a bit about the golf course, I think, that you, you would have question marks over. Yeah. Um, more, more than most major venues. Like There, there has been a few sort of uh, standouts where people, the things have not been right, like Erin Hills, for example, where the greens were lost. Um, but usually the golf course gets a lot of plaudits. And I think there's some players that are outspoken this week. There were others that were sort of more muted, but you're kind of damned by the faintest of praise, right? Yeah. Um, and it sounds as though, I mean, we, we weren't there, but there was it was clear to see on social media um, and different things that I'd listened to across the week that it wasn't the best fan experience by the sounds of it. Um, it was just, I mean, you say it was just weird watching it on TV. It's like mm-hmm. where were the where were the people? Yeah, like, certainly on on the first two days. And again, like I guess some of this might be mitigated by the fact we're watching the early groups and the early start times. But Christ, it just looked empty. Yeah, um, and then you sort of read that there were like twenty six thousand people or something on the property, 
and the vast majority of those were in hospitality. And you start, you start, to, it's like supposed to be a national open, right? Well, yeah, um, imagine if that was the open. Well, it's a, it's a very strange thing. Like, so I think the open gets 40 odd thousand people a day at, the, mm. at the, best, the best venues, so nearly double the amount of people. Obviously, a chunk of those were in hospitality, but there are there are people everywhere when you go to an open. Um, <laughs> it's like you're not you're not short on cra- on, on atmosphere. Um, so that was that was very very odd to see. What have you read about that? Why why was that the case? So, um, well, to be honest, the more I sort of read about it, the more I think, why on earth did they give the US Open to Los Angeles Country Club? Because to begin with, um, Steve did an article. A th- three days ago um, about the uh, guest information and the rules and regulations at L- LA Country Club. And I know every golf club has their rules. And there are a lot of um, sort of stuffy and uh, stuffy and exclusive golf clubs in the UK as well. They all have their rules. And I suppose if you don't like them, you don't have to go there, do you? But so Steve wrote down some golf club, golf clubhouse rules at Los Angeles Country Club. So, so children under the age of seven must maintain a conservative and modest attire in keeping with the club's traditions. Um, an unacceptable attire, shorts of any kind, including skorts and culottes. Or culottes? What? <laughs> I, I, I'll skip that bit. Culottes, they are. Culottes. What's, what's a culotte? I'll tell you what they are. They are trousers that look a bit like they're a skirt, which means you end up looking a bit too long because you can't work out whether the person wearing them is wearing a skirt or trousers. Really? They're a trick, basically. I see. Um, audible calls or messages must are only permitted inside closed vehicles in the parking lots, in the phone room, or in the phone booths in the men's and women's locker rooms. So, what was the first word you said there? Audible calls and messages. Oh, audible calls, right? Got you. Uh, are only permitted inside closed vehicles in the parking lots, in the phone room, or in the phone booths. Um, and to cap it off, Steve said, if the use of technology is not specifically addressed in this policy, then it is not permitted at the club. Um, you can read more about stuff that Steve wrote on our, on our website um, in the club section. Um, but again, I suppose a lot, a lot, a lot of them things are are tolerable. Um, if you go to a club and don't like its rules, you don't have to go back there, do you? But um, I, I think I think that sort of... And it is, if you go on the website, um, it's very... It's, there's not a lot of information about um, sort of green fees. There's no information about green fees and things like that. It sounds like a very difficult place to get on. I don't think there's any green fees, Matt. No. <laughs> no, well, no, there isn't. That's what I said. Um, but I, I just think that attitude, the, uh, that attitude at the golf club, I think that resonated in the crowd and resonated in the access to the event. Um, I looked on the ticket um, forum that they that the USGA provided, and it was two hundred ninety dollars for a ticket on Thursday, for example. Um, whereas at the Open, I think it's only about a hundred pounds for a Saturday or Sunday ticket. Um, and I think this this sort of attitude resonated onto the golf course, and that's what it seemed like from the things I've read and taken in from the week. Um, it's very corporate open. Um, a lot of tickets were made available to members, um, well, obviously, and then, but there are a lot of corporate tickets, a lot of sort of um, hospitality tickets, and just the, just location, just location of the course. I think in in Los Angeles. Um, surrounded by millionaires' houses, um, often get got mentioned on TV that Lionel Richie's house overlooked one of the um, greens. You could see the Playboy Mansion from from the course. So just the area and the atmosphere at the golf club was never going to create an atmosphere worthy of a major championship. I don't think. I mean, what what would you compare 
that in the UK? Like, what course would you compare holding an open app in the UK compared with LACC? Well, I mean, it's like it's like properly in the middle of Los Angeles, right? Yeah. Um, Los Angeles is like notoriously bad to get around. Um, the closest I can think is Royal Wimbledon in in South London. I mean, if you're mm. looking for somewhere that's like right near the city, plenty of hills, quite small property, stupidly private, and the traffic around it is absolutely horrific. Is it? Um, and also, like the type of fan you're going to get in that sort of area is not going to be boisterous. Like if you yeah. think about like the difference between I don't know having an open at um, on the on England's Gulf Coast at Birkdale, where you're getting like locals who are like sports fans, right? Mm. And they're and they're proper golf fans, and they like a beer, and they're they're not afraid to whoop and holler. The same as you get in a kind of Boston US Open or a New York golf tournament in the states, like people turn up because they're sports fans first and foremost and they want to get their voice heard. I think the kind of Californian kind of um, the moneyed area of LA that that golf course is in lends itself to a sort of totally different type of sports fan. Um, <clears throat> so I think, yeah, some, somewhere like that, you can kind of see that um, it would be a totally different atmosphere than you than you would find. I think it all speaks to some a place which hasn't necessarily got the infrastructure to to host loads of people and also a club that's like quite keen to sort of dictate terms like it's a really private club um and probably wants to sort of feel like the people who are on the property are going to be the type of people they want on the property um and therefore you get these limitations in terms of general admission tickets i was also reading somewhere there weren't actually any week tickets available so people are just going along for the day each day um and again, so that's people who are kind of, a, a, that is a different way of doing it. Like if you think about the open experience, people go and camp for the mm. whole week, right? And they're kind of in there and they're, they're almost sort of part of the narrative. Like they feel like they've kind of lived the tournament a bit more, whereas this just felt like people kind of like popping along um, to, to yeah. take a look because it, it was in town. Um, so, yeah, there's, I think, and again, there was quite a lot of players sort of speaking about this kind of thing and how it didn't really... It wasn't really, didn't feel like a major atmosphere. There was a few Californians kind of trying to defend it or certainly defend the public for not coming along. But I don't know, it was, it was an odd vibe, shall we say. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, something will have to change by the time it returns to LACC in 2039, be it, be it, I don't know, the, the routing of the course or the walkways they provide or the ticket access they provide because apparently, um, the routing of the course. It wasn't a very good viewing course, um, according to some people on social media. Um, say if you walked out and followed the group to get to another hole, you have to walk back the way you just came and things like that. And, you know, on the Thursday or Friday, when I watched the Tuned In, and it was Kepka, Rory and Matsuyama in one group, and they teed off the, off the tent for the first, they announced their names. There must have been about 30 people watching them. Whereas, you know, the, the Open, that that is for people who go to the Open... That that is a that is not, that is not a, a scene you can relate to because it's usually twenty or thirty people deep, let alone twenty or thirty people that have, that stood there watching. Yeah. Um, but no, huge credit to Wyndham Clark, um, his first major title. And as I said, yeah, he, he should be he should be looking at the US, uh, the um, the Ryder Cup team now, really. Um, but afterwards, Rory McIlroy, before he addressed the media, or around the time he was addressed the media after he come second, um, he was overheard say, saying to his agent. Um, that was St Andrews all over again, um, where he didn't do much wrong, but didn't really, couldn't really find another gear to to distance himself from the rest of the field. Um, I suppose St Andrews was a bit different because I think 
I don't know. He didn't do anything wrong at St Andrews, really. He made a few birdies in the final round. And, you know, Cameron Smith won that. I don't think McElroy lost it, to be fair. I think Cameron Smith won that. But this time, I think I think Rory, we don't know, but I think he could have more regrets this time. Um, he missed a short putt on the eighth hole for a, for, for a birdie. He missed a short putt. No, not, not a putt. On the 14th hole, I think that'll be a shot that will live in, mem- live in his memory for a while, where he hits it short of the green on the par five of a wedge. Um, his ball embedded short of the green, and he didn't get up and down from the sort of sort of grabby rough by the green. So I think there'll be some regrets that he has. I think there's. I, I think Clark won this as well, but I don't. I, I think McElroy um, would see this as a big missed opportunity than St Andrews, in my opinion, because Cameron Smith very much won at St Andrews. You know, he made six birdies and five consecutive birdies in the back nine. You know that that, that is very difficult to do. Um, whereas this time it was literally just a birdie for McElroy or a drop putt, and he'd have got into at least a playoff. I've got a few things to say to you. First of all, you can't just start the Rory McElroy section without saying we are now starting the Rory McElroy section. <laughs> some some of us find this sort of stuff very emotional, you know. <laughs> well, I was sort of late to the Rory part, if I'm honest. When I was a bit younger, I didn't actually take to him that quickly. Um, oh my god! But now I'm a I'm a huge fan. I'm a fully paid member of the fan club. Um, but anyway, that, that, that's for another day. Um, it's not it's not for another day. It's for now because he like he for some of us, and I think there's sort of an increasing number of us. I think he's he's totally the first name you look for. Sometimes the only name you look for. Um, he's kind. Of, I don't know why, but he's he's definitely got that sort of tiger effect for me. As in, mm. like he. He he's the reason I tune in to watch golf. Um, I guess part of it is like he's just a beautiful player to watch play golf um, when he's in full flow. And another part of it is just this sort of human element that he's got, where he's obviously so aware of what's happening. Um, and he kind of yeah, he's sort of he has these frailties that we all we see we, we all see in ourselves. So he you can't yeah. just you can't just start the Roy McIlroy section without preparing those of us who find it all a bit difficult to take with by not saying mm. this is the Roy McIlroy section. So, I mean, he, he, the way, the way he played the first yesterday, uh, sorry, on Saturday when he's playing with Shoffley, where he hit it like 380 down, right down the banner. <laughs> yeah. And then he, his second shot right down the banner, exactly the spot he wanted to land for. There's just nobody, and, and the, each swing he put, both swings he put on it were just absolute perfection, right? Mm-hmm. There's nobody else who plays golf like that. He it just, it's like, it's like kind of um, computer game stuff where it's just yeah, kind of it like, is. it just, it's just absolutely flush. Um, I just find it very difficult to talk about it. Like, it's a, I mean, his record in majors since he last won is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Like, I can't remember what, it's something like 37 majors since he last won and he's top 10 top 10 in 18 or 19 of them. And he, mm. he, he obviously does have this habit of backdooring top 10s. But like this, this I thought this week, it kind of felt like his week. I thought the whole thing was, the sort of narrative was written. He's had his sock in his mouth about live and God knows whatever else um, since the news broke about the merger a couple of weeks ago. I thought the whole narrative was going to be Roy's back focusing on his golf and he's, and he's turned out as US Open champion. I thought the early rounds just sort of suited him in that he was doing absolutely nothing stupid. Like it all felt mm. very, very calm. Um, not sure he had a double. Um, he seemed to be just kind of 
getting the job done. He wasn't holding, he wasn't hanging on, holding lots of putts like uh, Fowler was early in the week. He was doing it in greens in reg. I think he topped greens in reg for the week. Uh, he, yeah, so his strokes gained. Tita Green must have been right up there. So he's, it just felt like he was the guy that was in control of his golf ball. And then I think yesterday, and like to say, oh, it's, it's the old course all over again. Like he went out and did what you're supposed to do to win a US Open. I've tried, I, it feels to me like he's had some sort of like proper briefing off Tiger about this is what you do, Rory. You hit it in the middle of greens. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally, occasionally puts drop. You don't hand it to people. You hang around, you hang around, and eventually someone will, or someone will hand one or two to you, and that's how you're going to win more majors. Mm. And I feel like, I feel like that's how he played at, at St Andrews, and that's how he played again yesterday. I think there were a couple of things that went against him. First of all, the course setup and the idea of hitting into the middle of greens both yesterday and at St Andrews meant that you were going to be quite a long way from flags and you were going to be hoping for, for a putt to drop. Um, then there's a couple of like more self-inflicted things. I think Tiger in his pomp yesterday would have probably played a very similar round of golf, but he would have cashed in on the par fives. Mm. Um, so I think Rory birdied one, bogeyed one and parred one. If that becomes two birdies, and a par, then he's he's three shots better and he wins the tournament. Mm. And th- those are the sorts of margins that you're talking about. Um, the sec- he, didn't, he just did not seem to be able to buy a putt. Like he had so many putts that if you were looking at um, make percentages, that he would be just on the wrong side of 50-50 make percentage. He kind of just hits it that little bit too far away all the time. It's not his fault, but that's how it felt. And just nothing went in, did it? As in, just what he needed one or two 20 footers to drop and the whole thing's different. Um, so that is a bit of luck, isn't it? It's probably a bit of tension. Like people who hold a lot of puts tend to be quite free. He says he's been watching old videos of himself when he was a kid to try and sort of recover a bit of that freedom. Um, and then the sort of final thing on it is that, that Wyndham Clark did the thing. He made two bogeys on yeah. was it 15 yeah. or 16 or 16 and 17, which is what the Roy McIlroy, what the kind of number one player in the world, what the world top five player is waiting for. The guy who's got the major experience, who understands how to get things over the line, is hanging around and hanging around and hanging around and waiting for the sort of Johnny-come-lately, less experienced golfer to make those late mistakes. And he fucking did. <laughs> and it's like, well, here you go. This is your chance, Superman. And he just didn't fucking do it, did he? Yeah. In fact, he did the opposite and made his bogey exactly the wrong time. And it's just, oh, God. I mean... Like he is, he is with. I think he is he my favorite golfer of all time. I think he probably is because I just think throughout his career he's just sort of he's been a man apart in terms of how he presents himself. He's always always spoken his mind. He's not been afraid to change his mind. You always feel like you're getting the real him. Like even back to you know early comments when he was talking about the Ryder Cup being a an exhibition match. He's obviously he's now totally rolled back on at the last minute mm-hmm. of tears on the green. He's obviously been right at the front of this live debate. Um, just through his whole career, I think he's just been um, a sort of man apart, and he's had this golf game that is kind of just—it's just—it's—it's it's more luxurious, should we say, than anyone else mm-hmm. to watch. Like the other players who've dominated for a period, like God knows how Spieth did it um, by holding a lot of putts. Basically, Kepka does it in this sort of metronomic kind of Iceman way, um, and they've—the pair of them have both been kind of like dominant for a period and McElroy was like that but it's always just felt like McElroy's best golf is kind of better than anybody else's golf and I still feel like that and I'm definitely going to back him for Hoylake. Yeah Hoylake is it I don't think I've ever bet on Roy McElroy to win a tournament 
Um, and to be fair, I've been right every time in terms of majors. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the, the the more majors he doesn't win, it just makes this drought so unbelievable. Like if you said in after he won the PGA in 2014, if you said he wasn't going to win win another major for another ten years. I mean, it's absolutely staggering. I mean, it's it's not anything to to, to beating with, in my opinion, because he's so he is very like honest and genuine. And you know, he said afterwards yesterday that when he, when this next major does come, it's just going to be taste taste all the sweeter. Um, I, I mean, is is the next major going to come? Like, it's been, it has been ten years. I mean, and I know he's only thirty four, and he could still easily compete at majors for another ten years or even more. I mean, look at from Phil Mickelson. It could be another 20 years that McElroy is still competing at majors um, with his athleticism. Just say, that again. say that again. His what? <laughs> his athleticism. His athleticism. <laughs> um, well, I think yeah. that, that was the thing I was thinking this weekend, looking at him and looking at Fowler and looking at Sergio, who's obviously a bit older. Uh, but they're getting old, man. Like, McElroy's got grey hair. Mm. And like, yeah. it's, it, it is, like, it comes and it goes so quick. Yeah, it uh, does. Um, like we've watched his whole career, and like Fowler's obviously not yet won a major. But you think of these people as being like young and youthful, and they're, but they're not. They're getting old, um, mm. and there's like new people coming onto the scene all of the time, isn't there? Like um, more, there's more and more. Feels to me, there's the, the the depth of field in golf is just getting stupidly broad because you can win younger because yeah. of which um, makes it harder to win, of course. You can win. You can win younger because there's so much more knowledge around the game that's being passed on through Trackman data and through sports psychology mm. and all the rest of it. Um, there's less myth, if you like, like all of this stuff. Like back in the day, people used to talk about you peaked in golf in your forties because you had like you had to learn how to win and you had to learn the sort of nuances of the game. A lot of those nuances are kind of now, I think, exposed through technology. I don't just mean hardware technology. I mean like the data sur- that surrounds the game. People sort of understand much more about how to do it. Um, and you can win later because mm. they're all fitter, like sports nutrition. Um, they've all got coaching. They've all got, they're all in the gym. Uh, technology's helping older players much more than it used to do. So it feels to me the sort of the, the kind of age of a winner that is, if it used to be broadly speaking that people in their late thirties and forties, it's now any age basically from yeah. eight, 18 to 50. Um, and that's pretty frightening. I think if you're trying to dominate, um, and I think that's the one thing that you would say about Rory. He has lived through this period of kind of, there's a lot of people who are capable of winning majors um, and his record, even though he hasn't won one in that period, is still absolutely exceptional. Um, and you would hope that's what he's telling himself, that he keeps putting himself in the position, then he's going to get over the line in a few more eventually. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I asked the question there, is he going to win another one? Um, which I think is a legitimate question, to be fair. Um, but But if you think about it, I mean, at the Masters, so you see Phil Mickelson performing so well at the Masters at the age of 52. Like, McElroy could have a, a, a realistically have another good 16 goes at the Masters, um, which would suggest he, he would surely win win one of them. Um, but yeah, like you said then, what I said earlier, I've never ever bet on McElroy to win a major, but I think I think this sort of open championship could be the first time because he's won there before. It's and I, I like the point you made there, where obviously we don't know, but if if Tiger has sort of been passing on advice to him about winning majors, like that US Open performance and the San Andreas performance, it might not be a coincidence 
um, that those were very similar. You know, he's playing in a very similar way there, where he's hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. He hasn't converted yet, but you, you'd assume that if he keeps playing this sort of sensible pounce or pounce when you can golf, um, I think that was certainly standing in good stead for Hoylake. Um, yeah. When was the last time have you played Hoylake? I imagine you have, haven't you? I have played Hoylake several times. Yeah. I played it. I played it once. I've got bad memories of Hoylake actually because I went to University of Liverpool and I went to the golf trials. And I was <laughs> off seven at the time. I still am, but at the time I was a more accurate seven. Um, and it was sorry, golf- sorry, you mean you were more accurate, as in you hit it more accurately, or that was a more accurate handicap? It was a more accurate reflection of my golf because now I don't really play golf. Yet my handicap index is still seven. Is what I mean. You um, just you started off this podcast by telling me you've been to the range twice to do your yardages. <laughs> Well, because I want to get better. Right. Um, and we only played 16 holes. And I, I'd started really, really badly, like terribly. Like I was quite nervous. Um, but I ended up outscoring the two blokes in my in my group. One of them was a second team captain. So obviously he was going to get chosen. Fair enough. But I outscored the blokes in my group. And I outscored another lad that I knew got onto the team. Um, I knew I outscored him and he got on the team and I didn't, which I found quite difficult to take because if you got onto the team, you got like a five-day membership at Hoylake for about 200 quid or something. Your face didn't fit, did it, Matt? No, no. it was. I was, I was absolutely gutted. But in terms of the actual course, I thought Hoylake was really, really good. Yeah, it's mint, yeah. Yeah. We, we did a podcast with James Bledge, who's the uh, the course manager there. Mm. Uh, it's worth a listen. It's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's proper. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's, I listened to it, yeah. It's an old racetrack. Uh, so quite a big portion of it's on very flat land, and then the seven or eight holes that are strung along the dunes. Um, but it's had some great winners over the years. What do you think this? Because we're now in this sort of compressed sort of major season, aren't we? Now they've moved the date of the PGA. We basically start the Masters in mid-April, and then there's effectively a major every four weeks until until July. Um, See, so one of the big disadvantages I thought at the time was that you're going to end up with people just getting hot. And kind of like you're going to see very similar leaderboards at each of the each of the majors, which is kind of happening to a degree, I think. Yeah. Um, if you like dig below the surface of this US Open lead leaderboard, there's a lot of quality kind of like in the top 25. So people like Hovland, who obviously went well at the PGA, kept obviously won the PGA. Fitzpatrick feels like he's had a great year from a kind of consistency point of view without really getting it done. Um, Morikawa seems to be finding a bit of form. Cantley featured again. The live lads seem to be um, able to turn up and kind of produce. So you had good finishes from DJ. You had good finish from Cam Smith. Um, oh, when he was in his pomp, I always thought Fowler would be a great bet for the Open. Like he put mm. so well from sort of 15, 15 20 feet. Um, so there's there's a lot of kind of like major pedigree on that leaderboard. Like Fleetwood went well and is going to be a kind of home favourite um, at Hoylake. Scheffler was right in it again, like just ridiculous character. Um, and might well go well at Hoylake, where perhaps putting won't be such a big factor. Um, so it's like, I don't know, like it, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw a, not a too dissimilar sort of top 25 at Hoylake. Mm. It's anyone you're going to pick out for me? Um, I haven't actually looked yet. Well, I say I'll bet on Mackerel. I think I will. But the, the issue is the top three in the market are always so short. Yeah, yeah, forget um, that. Which is very annoying. However, on the last podcast I did ahead of the US Open with Tom Jacobs, um, he is an expert tipster, and I was talking to him. I don't think bookies do it yet, but they 
I asked if they do separate, like, highest live golfer markets. And I actually think the... And they don't, I don't think. And I think that the actual presence of, of the live golf league actually helps to narrow down the betting. Because in the top 10 or 15 in the, at three majors, you've had sort of three or four um, in the top 15 or top 10. So I think that helps narrow down the the each way market. So I, I, I'll definitely be looking... I'll definitely be looking at um, someone like Deschambeau, to be honest. Um, I actually, after the first round, I actually had a little bet on him because he was he was like two or three under and he was like five shots behind. And he was about 30 to one. So I thought, this is ridiculous. So I, I, I backed him then. Obviously, it hasn't worked, but um, it, worked, it, it worked to my um, advantage when it was at St. George's because I, I did Morikawa after the first round and that, and that, and that came in. No, nah, not, um, not got the patience for an open. I thought if he was going to win one, it'd be last year. And he, yeah, nah, true. Nah, 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 nah. He can I'll sort of bomb it round to the old course, can't he? I'll tell you who Victor Hovland will win this year's open. Well, I'd love that. I think he's definitely trending. Um, I thought he'd win this week, to be honest. I actually thought, I thought he was nailed on to win, to be honest, having won the Memorial and performed pretty well against Brooks at Oak Hill. I thought he was nailed on to it. I mean, at least challenge. I'm uh, I'm eighty to one. Oh yeah, of course you might be playing, mightn't you? I'm eighty to one to uh, win regional qualifying. Regional <laughs> qualifying. Which well, I can... when, when, when is that? Uh, it's on Monday. It's a week today. And that's at our Woodley. It is at, at where? <laughs> <laughs> what was wrong with that pronunciation? I don't know. I think I'd probably go for Old Woodley. Oh, Old Woodley. <laughs> I don't think I'd go for Al Woodley, but yeah, it's there anyway. And then uh, where, where, where'd you get put if you go through? Uh, West Lanks. Oh, so not Royal Sinkports? No, didn't choose that one. Too far away. I'm getting absolutely pumped for the Open. I don't know about you. Did I, We're having a golf day at uh, Wallasey on the Tuesday. Uh, uh, yeah, we- I can't wait. I can't. I, can't, I absolutely love the Open. I went, like, I went in I went in at St George's because it's only 15 minutes from my family home in Dover. Um, so I was absolutely buzzing for that. I absolutely love St George's. Um, and I love the Open. It was absolutely scorching as well. Yeah. Um, like the weekend tickets that was amazing. And I went in. I went to Birkdale in 2017, which was brilliant. Running, running over hills after Jordan Spieth, which was really exciting. And then, then me and my dad went in 2014, ironically to Hoylake. I don't know why we chose that. So that's um, your, that's it. That's your entire Open pedigree. Three three. And I went in 2011 to St George's as well. Okay, Darren Clark. Gosh, Darren Clark. I didn't really appreciate Darren Clark winning though, because I only sort of I was 13, yeah, 13. So I didn't really appreciate how sort of special it was that Darren Clark won. I was probably rooting for Dustin Johnson or Ricky Fowler. You're really not very old, are you? No. To be fair, I've actually been to the Open a good amount of times for my age. I should definitely mention as well that the uh, podcast is obviously in partnership with Callaway. Um, no, no Callaway player won the. Uh, US Open this week, but they have obviously enjoyed a massively successful season, and I'm sure I'll be mentioning them again in the winner's circle next week. So thanks for joining me, Tom. Um, it was Steve. It was Steve's turn last week. It was your turn this week, and we should have a few interviews. A few, a few more interviews coming up with players on the podcast soon. There's plenty to look forward to on the Slam. Cool. Right. I'll see you later. Okay. Cheers, Tom. <laughs>